Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. John chapter 6. Today we're going to look at the bread of life. Actually, it's going to be part one of the bread of life. Um, It was originally a full sermon that now has become two, maybe three. We're going to look at verses 22 through 59 over the next two weeks. And I, I want to do something today. I want to begin in my introduction by talking about where we are in our series in the study of John John is a book that is laid out differently than the other Gospels. And the way that John lays his book out is he has a section of Scripture that has um, a miracle that Jesus performs. And then following those miracles, there will be a discourse or a teaching that's usually more lengthy than the miracle passage. But what Jesus is doing is he's explaining what the miracle means and why it is used by God and how it is that God is using that in the lives of people. And so, and and in those discourse passages, we also know that there are seven I am statements where Jesus is teaching about the nature of himself and the character and the being of God. But we're at one of those discourse sections that is so important for us. Uh, They're all important, but it's important because of where it falls in the Gospel of John. And we're moving to an increasingly deeper level of teaching about the character and the nature of God. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at the work of God, how God works. You know, we talked about the miracle of the loaves and the uh, crusty sardines and, and what he was doing. But But I want you to see as we continue, as these people continue to to beckon against Jesus to do something that would lead them to believe, I I want you to understand what God's doing in your life right now, in every day, in every time and situation that you find yourself in. I want you to understand how it is that God works because that's what John is saying to us. John writes, chapter 20, verse 31, these things I write, he says, that you might No, uh uh-uh, that you might think God's cool, uh uh-uh, that you might believe and receive eternal life. And that's why we're studying the book as well, that we might believe in him. I want to just give you a very brief introduction to the relationship between miracles and the discourse teaching sections in the Gospel of John. There's an important principle for us to understand the relationship between the work of God and the way of God. Let me tell you why this is important. When we see at first the work of God, we come to know something about God. But knowing something about God leads us to understand the way that God works. In other words, not only what he did, but why he did it. And ultimately, the will of God is doing, right? Who wants to know the will of God? I think every child of God, right? It begins with his work. And through his work, you see his way. And in coming to understand his way, you see and know his will. So what is the relationship between the work of God 
and the way of God. That's what I want to address, this important principle. The work of God, which we principally see in the Gospel of John through his miracles, okay? So the work of God is not to wow us. And consistently, time and time again, we see the people of Scripture following Jesus, and Jesus will tell them today, you came because you got entertained. That's the only reason you showed up. And, and that'll flesh out before the end of, this, uh, end of this chapter. The work of God is not to wow us, but rather to win us. And that's why John says his purpose is he writes because or so that we will believe. God is working in your life to win you, to believe in him. But the way of God is to woo us, not to overwhelm us. And what that means is this. God will not cause to enforce something on you that you will not receive from him by faith. Every time we see the work of God, we will see this explanation by Jesus. God wants to win us to believe in Jesus, but he woos us. He does not overwhelm us. If you want God, you must believe and receive Jesus. And believe begins in repentance and continues in obedience. If you don't believe when God works, you can't see his way, you can't know his will. What I would say to us today is that God is working today to win you by wooing you with his kindness and his grace because that is the way of God. And so as we consider that, let's move into our text. And I want us to see today that Jesus is the bread and the drink that gives true life to all who believe in him. And I, I hope and pray you believe that today for whatever you're going through, for wherever you are. I hope you believe that Jesus is the bread and the drink that gives true life to all who believe in him. As I said, we'll consider this passage over two weeks. Today, we're going to look at the five problems of unbelief. Next week, we're going to look at three truths that God provides to destroy our unbelief and woo us to believe. We must understand how unbelief manifests itself in our life so we can recognize it and repent. The first action of belief. God wants you to believe in Jesus to receive and live in his true or eternal life today. That's his will. That's his will. So let's dive in and look at his work and his way that we might see that for us. Unbelief is your biggest problem. It's the biggest problem for all of us in receiving and walking with Jesus. If you look into the Word, chapter 6, verse 22 through 24 sets the, uh, sets the stage for us. You remember that he's just fed the 5,000. When he fed the 5,000, he went away. His disciples didn't know where he'd gone. They got in the boat. They began to cross the sea. The storm blew. They couldn't make headway across the sea. Jesus walks on the water to them, comes, and all of a sudden they're on the other side of the sea. 
Sea, right? Well, all the people are like, where did he go? Where did the disciples go? We know that he left. So some other boats, it tells us in verse 22 to 24, come to the shore and this mass of people, imagine the sailors, this mass of people charges them going, get us in the boat and get us to the other side. And so that's what they did. They commandeered the boats and they had the boats take them to the other side of the sea and they catch up to Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 25. Let's look at verse 25 together and I'm going to read through verse 29. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's pause there for just a moment. I want us to look today at the five problems that unbelief creates that prevent us from believing in Jesus. If we don't know what our problem is, we can't understand how God wants to confront it and to heal us of it, if you will. Unbelief is our problem. The first problem that we see of unbelief here is simply this. Unbelief skews our understanding of reality. It skews our understanding of reality. When Jesus addresses the crowd's first question here, he goes right to the heart of what he wants them to know. And it's simply this, that only believing in him leads to true life, not just following him around wherever he may go, not being appeased or impressed with the works that he does and, and entertained to a sort, or even, shall we say, to eat your fill which is what he says, you're here because I satisfied a physical need. You want your physical needs met and the immediacy of your demands addressed more than you really want to understand what I'm truly here for. Now, we could argue against that. The problem is Jesus said it. And when Jesus said it as his people, we what? Receive it, right? That's reality, friends. Jesus just defined reality, and what he told them was, you don't even know what reality was. Life with God, friends, changes everything about this life in the way in which we now live. The, the, the old hymn says this, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. God sheds the light of his glory on our life when we believe in Jesus and walk with him. But when we follow along in unbelief, it skews the way that we see everything that is. And Jesus tells the people that they only followed because of temporary pleasure, because of perishable food. And he says, do not seek food that perishes, but the food that leads to eternal Life. They didn't believe in Jesus as God. They received him for what he could do for them. And unbelief was skewing their understanding and causing them to value a lesser glory. Friends, we live out of a skewed understanding every time we use the work of God to satisfy only a lesser self-centered glory in our lives. 
John provides a very strong indication of when we live with a skewed understanding. When our first response to God is simply this, what more must I do? What more must I do? There's really two ways that we could understand this question. And the first way is the best case scenario. They ask this question, but it gets asked from an attitude or a motivation of justification. It's just like the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and said, Lord, I've done this and I've done, I've obeyed all the laws. What more must I do? You know, he wasn't really asking because the answer he got, he didn't like and he walked away. He was asking because he wanted Jesus to acknowledge all that he had done. And that's the question that they ask. What more must we do? And best case scenario, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. This is motivated by an attitude of justification that simply says this. In our day and time that the gospel is Jesus plus my work. And that's completely an ungospel. Anytime we add to or believe that it must be added to, we make the gospel something wholly other than it is. Now the worst case scenario is... is very likely more the situation that we're dealing with here. And it's simply this. It's a question that's used to deflect the issue at hand. You've done that, right? Oop, hey, you know, you changed the subject. And deflection is always rebellion of the heart. See, friends, we need Holy Spirit to convict us of our self-serving attitudes and motivations in response to God's word so we can repent and we can obey God's word by faith. But unbelief skews our understanding to create a selfish reality that serves and protects me first. And so often we don't even know it. We don't even see ourselves doing it. In the midst of that problem, the first prayer we must pray is, God, show me your way and your will. Convict me where I have skewed the reality of me only to serve me. First problem of unbelief is that excuse our understanding in the way that we see all that is. Verse 30, let's go to the second problem. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So we see here that the first problem is in full effect. They show by their second question, they have no understanding of what's really going on and what Jesus is really saying to them. And so they ask for a sign to prove what he said. It's interesting, the very historical sign that they point to should have been proof enough for them to believe in the moment in which they were living. But it wasn't. They actually used that proof against him. Never mind all that Jesus had already done. Let's do a quick review. He just fed over 5,000 people, likely three to four times that many people, with five loaves and two fishes. That's a pretty big deal, don't you think? He's, he's healed a man sitting by the pool at Bethesda, right? Or excuse me, Bethsaida. And everybody found out about that because it made him mad, right? He turned water 
to the finest of all wines at a wedding. Can you just give us one more sign? Show us one more thing, God, that you'll do so that we can believe in you. They demanded yet one more sign. You know, the question really beckons, how? How could we potentially ask for one more sign after all that he had already done? But friends, that's exactly the point of unbelief's second problem. And here it is. Unbelief confuses the priority of eternal glory with immediate demand. You see, when we live out of a skewed understanding of reality, we confuse the priority of God's eternal glory by valuing more highly our immediate need or immediate demand. Jesus says to them, the manna from heaven was your sign to believe, but you just used it as bread to fill your belly. You know, maybe Jesus was talking to them more about the wilderness when he answered the question than he was about sitting over and getting fed by the loaves and fishes just a day before. God gave manna and now he had given bread from heaven. You see, people don't, or people, the people did not see the manna being from God and that's why they missed Jesus as being the bread who had come from God. They saw the manna coming from Moses instead of God. And that's why they will look at Jesus and they'll dismiss him because isn't he the son of Joseph? What, what good could possibly come out of Galilee, right? Don't, don't we know his brothers? You see what they're doing here? They, they interpreted Jesus by what they understood of Moses instead of understanding Moses and what God had done there in their understanding and belief in Jesus. And we do the same things every day. They were more focused on their immediate needs, their immediate concerns, and their immediate demands than they were what God was doing in their moment. You see, unbelief had consumed them with self, and because of that, it confused them to think about God's work serving their immediate demand more than his eternal glory. That's how we miss God. We go, oh man, God gave this to me. Good. Mm. Done. What you gonna do next, God? Right? And that's what we do. Think about Jacob and Esau. This is a great example for us and maybe the most prevalent way we do it today. Esau came home and you know, Jacob and Esau, man, Esau was daddy's favorite. Jacob was mama's favorite. You know who's going to win that battle. That, what, it's okay to laugh. That's funny. Right? Jacob, all his life, had been begging, bartering, lying, stealing. His whole life is defined by one tumultuous situation. And he didn't like Esau. Because Esau was his older brother, and Esau, being the oldest of the family, was in line to receive the principal inheritance of the father. And Esau was a burly, kind of rough dude, you know, like, he wore animals, you know, for underwear. I mean, he was like, bad dude, you know. He came in, and Jacob was the cook of the house. You know, he, he helped around the home. And, and there was a tension between the two of them. And Jacob didn't like Esau. We don't know that Esau didn't like Jacob. Never tells us that. But it said Esau was so hungry. I, I've been hungry, but I don't think I've ever been so hungry that I was willing to barter my birthright for a meal. 
That's serious hunger, right? What did he do? Jacob said, give me your birthright and I'll give you some soup. Man, that must have been some kind of soup. Esau said, okay. And he sold his birthright, the inheritance of his life, for one meal. Friends, I'm going to tell you what. We sell out eternity every day in our life when we reduce God's glory and the work that he's doing in us to satisfy us in the moment and not let it consider or have any ramifications for the big picture of everything that's going on in our life. It's a serious hunger that confused his priorities. And so often when we get consumed by the situations, the problems, and the needs that we come under, we let them confuse us in the same ways. We miss the true meaning when we confuse God's work to only serve our immediate demands. When we live in unbelief, friends, it means that we miss true life by confusing God's glory with our immediate demands. Listen to this. When unbelief confuses us, we, trades God, we trade God's far more glory for our far less glory. Here's what unbelief does. It confuses us to see God by my situation instead of allowing God's word to define my situation. When unbelief confuses us, we see God's work by the way we feel instead of listening to seek God's glory to determine how we ought to think or feel about things. When unbelief confuses us, we we are confused to think of God as it relates to our demand instead of how it is that our demand relates to God's eternal glory in our life. And we barter what we cannot see, God's glory, for what we can see, the immediate demand or need of our life, and we never win with that trade-off. It is the most costly meal of our life, and we try to eat it on a daily basis. Unbelief confuses us to deny God by the demand of the moment. Whatever it is you're going through right now is not just about now, and it's not just about you. If we should learn anything from this, we should see this. Every second, Christian, every moment of your life is about God and his eternal glory coming in. I mean, that, that's the kingdom of God has come. Eternity is in our hearts. True life has brought us to life from the dead. And we're living now in a reality that is far beyond what we can see or take hold of. And when we reduce the work of God, which is never just for the moment, to only the way it can serve us, we think that's the way of God. Meet my need, meet my concern, meet my demand now so that I can determine God's will and not seek God's will for my life. God's purpose, his work, his way, and his will for our lives is always revealed for eternal glory. And you will never see God's eternal glory until you believe and let the Holy Spirit of God clean out the confusion of how you see it, how you think about it, and how you obey God's word in the midst of it. Never forget, never forget the clearest image of seeing God's will led Jesus to the cross. Don't forget that. Father, If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. And out of the garden where he prayed, in front of the courts where he was unjustly condemned and sentenced, he walked the path all the way to the cross. 
Never believe that following Jesus won't demand sacrifice of that which we hold dear. Unbelief confuses us with self-glory every time we fail to see the eternal purpose of God's work through Jesus Christ and to trust that work. Jesus moves the conversation to a very deep level of spiritual truth. Look at verse 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to the But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. You do not believe. You see, you've got a skewed understanding of reality because of unbelief and it's confused you about the glorious priorities for your life. That's what God is saying. When unbelief skews our understanding and confuses our priority, we're only left with this. And here's the third, third problem. Unbelief deceives us to reject what is right in front of us deceives us to reject what is right in front of us. Jesus says there is a greater manna than the manna that came in the wilderness. It is the bread of life who has fallen from heaven, has come down. People rejected Jesus because of their need or their demand for evidence was not satisfied. You see, all Jesus had already done was enough to believe, but the people rejected him. Why? Because they were deceived. We miss God right here in the every day of what he's doing. And when we miss him there in his work, we we cannot know his way and we will never understand his will. Unbelief in us deceives us to reject even what God's word says directly to us. It blinds us to God, friends. And you know what it is about blindness? Darkness defines normality. That's the thing about blindness. When we're deceived by unbelief, we are blind to God. We are blind to Jesus. We are blind to the gospel. And darkness of blindness defines normality. So we believe this, and here's our deception. What I do see is what I ought to see. And that's not right. But we're deeply convinced it is because that's what's right in front of us. Believe is the only cure for the blindness of unbelief. God helps those in unbelief to believe. Maybe you find yourself there today in your life. You've never, you've never repented of your sins and become a Christian. And you know today, you, you say, I just don't believe in Jesus. I, I, I'm not going to repent of my sins or I haven't. And, and I don't know. I, say, I want you to know that God helps you to believe. You may find yourself today going, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. But because of this situation or this circumstance, I, I don't know what. I don't know how. And, and you feel blinded by the situation. I, I'm telling you, God helps those who are blind to see and believe. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to trust that what God is saying to you today is sufficient for what you're facing right in front of you. But if you won't, you'll continue in the darkness 
that you've come to understand as normal. Just as the people heard Jesus speak to them, so we hear God speak today by his word. God gives faith to us when we turn from unbelief and believe in Jesus. Let the problem that you face today turn you to seek God and to ask him for faith to believe. Ask God to give you faith by the hearing of his word, even right now. God, help me in this situation, in this circumstance, in this part of my life, with my life. Help me believe. Help me believe. God answers the prayer. Help my unbelief. It's a biblical prayer. It's a biblical prayer. He answers it. What God provides by divine revelation through his word is fully, and it is, hear me, it is the only sufficient evidence to believe for salvation. There will not be another way. It is the only way. Believe is the key. It is the only right response to unbelief. And the first act of believe is always repent. Turn from self and look to Jesus. God gives faith to believe in Jesus and to obey for true life. But repentance, if it's not our first response, as it wasn't the first response of the people to Jesus, leads us to continue in unbelief. Look at verse 41 with me. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? I know that boy whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Friends, here's the fourth problem that we have with unbelief. That unbelief grumbles in us over what is seen to ignore what it is that faith demands. Unbelief grumbles over what is seen to ignore what faith demands. The Israelites were hardened to God's word. And that's why Jesus says, so they grumbled against him. Grumbling, listen to me. Grumbling is the spiritual language of unbelief, right? It's the spiritual language of unbelief. It fills self with more and more stained glory, death, and evidence of unbelief. That's all it does. When we grumble, we're just consuming unbelief in insurmountable amounts. Grumbling is always, friends, it's always the the threshold into sin for the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites have just left Egypt after watching God and his mighty hand deliver them by 10 plagues. 10 plagues. What sign are you going to give us now, God? I mean, it's like this is so cyclical. It's like we can call it. Why can we call it? Because we live it. After, after they left Egypt and, and ten plagues that God sent to, to draw them out. And it tells us that all day and all night as God led them out, he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There was never a moment in leaving Egypt that they didn't know the presence of God was with them because of a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. But what was the first thing they did once they got out of Egypt and the clapping subsided? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And on the horizon, there's just, there's just this darkness between the earth and the heavens. And it's rising. It's a cloud of dust 
That's right. Never mind the cloud and the pillar that have been in front of them the whole time. Now they're fixated on this cloud of dust that is behind them because the Egyptians are pursuing it. The ground is rumbling. They can feel the chariots of Pharaoh's army coming after them. And the Israelites saw the cloud of dust rising. They ignored the cloud of God's presence by day and the pillar of fire by night of God's presence. And what did they do? They grumbled. That's exactly what they did. They grumbled against Moses. And what did they say to him? You did this to us. No, technically God did this for you. You did this to us. You brought us all the way out into the, to the wilderness so that we can die. We could have died having lived a long, torturous life in Egypt, but rather you brought us out here to die. And then it tells us that the Israelites went into the midst of the sea. God said, stop grumbling and keep walking, right? Raise your hand, Moses, and split the waters. And so listen to what it says in Exodus 14. The Israelites went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. That's a pretty sharp imagery if we're thinking about it, right? And here's what happened. They all got to the other side of the sea. And when they got into the other side of the sea, I'm telling you, that cloud of red wilderness dust was overwhelming the horizon by this point. And that's exactly what it was doing to their heart. Because when they walked across the seabed on dry ground, they again stopped and they turned around to see that that dust cloud was still following them. And you know what they did? Just a word or two, not a lot this time. But the Bible tells us that the Egyptian army pursued them. And here's what it says. They got into the seabed and the mud just clogged their chariots down and they couldn't move. And then as they all came into the sea, the Bible tells us that the walls of water that had guarded the Israelites drowned the Egyptians. Do you remember what it said about how the Israelites crossed the seabed? Dry. Why were the chariots not able to make it across the sea? Mud. Mud clogged their chariots and waters, buried them in a sea grave. It says this, friends, throughout the night, one chariot after the other got clogged in the mud. Throughout the night, when they could no longer see because the darkness had fallen, they were hearing the cries of the Egyptian soldiers, I can't move any further, this chariot won't go, the horse is stuck, what are we going to do? The waters are falling. The walls are coming in all through the night. They watched the hand of God that had delivered them on dry ground. Now capture the enemy in mud and cover him in the waters. All the way till morning, Exodus says, they saw him. Man, a celebration broke out, right? 
I mean, the work of God had just delivered them in a powerful way. And it tells us that they sang and they rejoiced and Moses wrote a song for the people and the people sang the song. And it tells us that for three days they celebrated the victory that God had given them. But it makes you want to ask, how long will the glory last? One day for each verse. Because in Exodus 14, within three verses... Do you know what it says? I'm thirsty. You brought us out here to kill us, didn't you, Moses? And they, say it with me, grumbled. Grumbled. Grumbling is the language of idolatry. Grumbling hears God's truth, sees God's work, and it casts a shadow of self-reality over it to reject it. Grumbling talks to ourself to reinforce our unbelief's position in us and its rule over our mind and over our hearts. Grumbling is the self-attack strategy of Satan to destroy us. Grumbling is the conversation of Satan's curse that keeps rehearsing itself within us. When we converse in unbelief every time God speaks through his word, but, but we ignore what he says with what we keep repeating to ourselves and then to others. Listen, grumbling is the smoke signal that warns us unbelief is burning within That's what grumbling is. Grumbling gives words to our anxiety. It gives words to our insecurity. It's wallowing in our own sin sty to justify our unbelief by discrediting God's word. It consumes us with more of our skewed reality and our confused glory that we're already seeking because we're deceived. Grumbling grinds away at the heart and the soul to a very fine dust so that any movement of life just... Destroys us. And grumbling is when God speaks, but we ignore it because we keep talking about the problem. Friends, the story that we continually tell ourselves becomes the reality that we come to believe about ourselves. And grumbling tells us we are destroyed because it is the destroyer that is giving verbiage to our language. Grumbling displaces truth by discrediting God's word. Grumbling locks our eyes down on self and it pours more and more of me into me. I was in Detroit last week. It's a ravaged city economically. Over 60,000 homes within the city proper are abandoned as we speak. It's It's a city where the homes are either boarded up or they're completely destroyed. It's crazy. I've been told that there are homes have been found there where the water has continuously run for over a year. It's completely overtaken the home, saturating the entire structure and, and, and consuming the whole footprint of the home because the city just doesn't have the resources to send people out to check on these abandoned properties. It's overwhelmed. There's no tax base. They can't hire people. There's nothing they can do. There's just homes that are waiting to collapse because like a sponge or like a piece of toast that gets saturated with water, it just collapses. 
And when we consume ourselves with grumbling, we saturate our lives in unbelief based on what we can see, based on what we know, based on what it is that we understand. And grumbling leaves no room for God's word that gives life to come into our lives. You see, a greater problem with grumbling is its infectious potency. Potency. It just, it envenomates with our problems instead of seeking counsel and encouragement from one another. It spreads spiritual infection faster than an airborne virus. The presence of a grumbler or a chronic complainer just sucks the life out of you. That's why the Bible tells us that we're to do all things without grumbling. Why? Because of what it is and what it does to us. The Bible tells us Christians welcome one another without judging the exterior and dismissing. That Christians are patient with one another without grumbling to one another against one another. That, that grumbling, complaining, and griping, it is never, not in any situation, an act of faith nor a faithful witness. There's another more important word for us to understand grumbling though. Grumbling is always sin and it never serves any good purpose in you, any good purpose for you, or any good purpose for others around you. Verse 52. Grumbling's a big problem, friends. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Six times. Six times in this passage, Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. But they miss Jesus. Why? Because they miss God when Moses brought the manna to. The fifth problem, I need to move through this quickly, is this unbelief fixates on the minutia to dispute greater truth. Six times Jesus tells them he is the bread of life, that he is the living manna from heaven. You know, when somebody keeps saying the same thing to you, maybe you ought to think about that just the words that are being spoken isn't all they're saying, but there's a greater truth to it, right? And that's what Jesus is teaching them. He laid down his life that we might feast on eternal life. But when we fixate in unbelief, we starve to death. And the people immediately fixated on the detail to dispute Jesus' greater truth. <laughs> I'm not eating his flesh. You know, when we fixate on something, it means we fix our minds to harden against anything else. Here's your illustration. Social media comments. You ever, you ever know how, and now you're beginning to see people go, please don't comment if you don't read the article. Why? Because that is modus operandi on social media. Like people see the headlines and have an opinion about what the article says. Right? I'm always reminded of this by God's word. Without a desire to understand or to receive, we dispute. That's what we love to do. Fixating on a detail to dispute is as old a tactic as any other. It did not start with social media. It started in the heart of humanity by cause of sin. Nothing like chaos. There, there's just simply nothing like the chaos of verbal agreement or argument to avoid what it is that we don't want to deal with. And that's why we fixate on things. Unbelief causes us to fixate on what it is we want over what God said so we can avoid the issue or our responsibility in it. 
Fixation entrenches us in unbelief. It causes us to be so distracted by another person or another situation that we can only see what they need to do instead of any consideration for what we should be doing. It causes us to dispute God's word with God himself and to have disdain because we don't see how it could possibly be true in our understanding, how it could possibly work in our situation or how it could possibly be beneficial for anyone. And we become hardened and paralyzed until all the others get it right. Then they'll be able to champion what I have said all along. Any effort to reach us is only met by resistance and dismissal from us. Listen, when unbelief fixates us, we can only pray for the Spirit to bring conviction that breaks our fixation on self and lifts our gaze to see Jesus. That's our only hope, friends. I want to ask you this morning, is unbelief manifesting itself in you in any form? In any form? Is there an attitude or an action? Is there a way in which you feel stuck in following God? Maybe even asking, what more can I do? Listen to this. God is working today by his Holy Spirit to lead you out of unbelief, to believe in Jesus, and to walk in eternal life. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. The last thing I say before I'll pray. Christian, you may not see unbelief's problem in you. How it is that you've confused a priority or skewed a reality. But if you've grumbled and if you are fixated on certain details to justify yourself, there is deception because of confusion and skewed reality in you. That's unbelief. Jesus is the bread and the drink that gives true life to all who believe in him. Let's pray.